Hello, and welcome to Your Favorite Movie. I'm your host, Evan Kelly. I've always loved movies. I feel they have a unique power that isn't found in other types of media. So I've invited a few of my friends to come and talk about their favorite movies. This isn't a debate. I'm not trying to challenge anyone's rationale or determine the objective greatest movie of all time. My hope with these conversations is to begin to reach at the heart of what makes film so resonant. My guest today is Derwin Lester II, host of The Blanket Fortress of Solitude. On his podcast, Derwin covers an eclectic array of topics, including pop culture and movies. Derwin wanted you all to know he sometimes wakes up screaming from nightmares, where cats have human faces and those cats know they shouldn't exist, being a slight against the Lord God. Derwin grew up in and around comic book stores, which inculcated a deep understanding of how popular culture sticks with us throughout our lives. In both the podcast world and in my own life, he is one of my most trusted sources for pop culture-related opinions. Derwin's favorite movie is the 2006 fantasy drama Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction propels us into the mundane life of IRS accountant Harold Crick, played with understated pathos by Will Ferrell. Harold is concerned when he begins to hear a voice narrate his daily actions, in great detail and with an exquisite vocabulary. When the voice intimates that death is imminent, Harold goes on a journey of self-discovery, that probes the nature of fate, individual agency, and the artistic process. The film marked a radical shift in the career of Will Ferrell, who up to this point had predominantly charmed audiences with his comedic antics in films such as Elf, Zoolander, and Anchorman. Ferrell's performance was well regarded by critics, and stands as a unique entry in his filmography. The film itself was warmly received, but grossed a disappointing $53 million against a production budget of $30 million during its initial theatrical run. However, the film has endured among fans, and retains its relevance and status to this day. Stranger Than Fiction was directed by chameleonic director Mark Forrester, and written by Deepwater scribe Zach Helm. Also featuring an accomplished ensemble of Maggie Gyllenhaal, Emma Thompson, Dustin Hoffman, and Queen Latifah, here is my conversation with Derwin Lester II. Derwin Lester, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Mr. Evan Kelly. What is your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Stranger Than Fiction, starring the epic Will Ferrell, directed by Mark Foster, written by Zach Helm, released in November 10, 2006. I might have it pulled up. So, Derwin, how many times have you seen Stranger Than Fiction, and or is there a specific strong memory you have of watching it? Um... There was a point in my life when I was living in an army barracks. And by barracks, I mean I had a one-room, one-man room to myself uh, in 2007. And I picked it up at uh, at the DVD section at the Base PX in Fort Gordon, Georgia, in Augusta, Georgia. And I didn't really have a lot of friends at the time because I was kind of a weird guy who didn't know how to, you know, like there was a piece of conformity that I was missing to the proceedings. So I just found movies and I watched movies and, and I found stranger than fiction there. And it was about this kind of really weird guy who didn't quite fit in, didn't really have many friends. And he had one friend, which I had one friend and, (laughs) you know, like my peers were, yeah, I was a 20 year old private first class. My peers were getting drunk at barracks parties and, you know, and, 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 waking up naked in a front lawn in the uh, company office. And I was reading the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe 
at night while also getting drunk at barracks parties. But I always woke up with my pants on in my barracks room. Uh, hey, good good on you. Not everybody did. <laughs> so do, do you think that um, obviously we're going to say that that point in your life was a good time for you to see Stranger Than Fiction because you, you felt this sense of connection to the main character. Sure. How has your relationship to the movie evolved now that you're no longer just that, that one guy in your one room barracks? Um, it's the densest movie I've seen. It's so thick and lean at the same time. There's not an ounce of fat on it. Hmm. Nothing's all wasted. muscle. It's all muscle. Nothing's wasted. Even, even the superfluous secondary character, even the, the tertiary characters, really. Um, there's kind of throughout the proceedings, there are these background extras with maybe a few lines here or there that there's a bus driver lady, there's a kid mm-hmm. on a bike, and then you see them kind of reappearing right in different sections. You kind of see their story yep. a little bit. And one of the driving forces of the movie is, is, well, let's start here. There's a really well done love story at the spine of this thing where you've got this stuffy, really buttoned down IRS auditing agent, right? Like the stuffiest man who ever lived meets this knockout, beautiful, free spirit baker, hippie lady who runs a bakery, but also she studied at like Harvard Law or something mm-hmm. until she realized I love cookies even more. And who doesn't? And <laughs> she's being audited because at the time, this was like 2005, six, seven, uh, the Iraq war was unpopular. And so she goes, oh, I don't want to pay for the war as a protest thing. She refused to pay all of the taxes she owed to the IRS. And so they sent him in the movie there by itself, just boy meets girl. The girl teaches the boy how to live. The boy teaches the girl how to not go to prison over her taxes. I would watch that <laughs> movie all by itself. That movie is just kind of like a subplot, right? It's one plot of many, right? But that plot there has no fat on it either because there's no time because there's too many things to do. And so while Harold Crick, our main character, is going through that experience, you've got this voice in his head, this omnipotent voice of God, right? God sounds like a middle-aged British woman. Who would have thought? And she's describing all the things that he does. She says, oh, you brush your teeth this many times. You take this many steps to the bus. You always tie it in a single half winds or not in your tie, right? And so he mm-hmm. thinks naturally I'm going insane because who wouldn't think that? And then that character, the, the narrator is revealed to be a, a writer, right? And as that writer is exploring her own writing, she's fantasizing about these elements, these things, these ways to do a thing. And I won't spoil it yet. And Throughout all of her fantasies, these same characters keep popping up, right? The background characters, the bus lady, the boy on the bike. And it's, 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 there, there's not an ounce of fat on this movie. And I could go 
deep in it. I feel like I'm 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 skipping over things right now, and I'm like, no, no, just savor it, <laughs> savor it like a fine wine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, for for the record, I think we're okay doing spoilers on this one. I think I want I want to discuss the movie, and so if that includes telling everyone that the author plans to kill off Harold Crick, I, I think that that's fair fair game. Oh, but sure. I, I do want to. Yeah, I, I want to highlight sort of the interesting element that you brought up in response to this past question, and that is the relationship subplot here. And I've only seen this movie once when you recommended it for the podcast, and, and I greatly enjoyed it. And one of the things that is a strength of having sort of this shell plot, which encases a smaller subplot is that you can pick out different things from the movie to focus on depending on where you're in in your life so it sounds like when you first saw this very close to when it came out you felt more isolated Mm -hmm. and so you were drawn to the part of the movie that represented that isolation Mm -hmm. but now you know that's been years and years you're married you're in a good place and so now maybe it sounds like you can appreciate the the romance part of it and, and identify with that aspect of Harold Crick's presentation a little bit more than maybe you did initially. Well, sure. And well, no, see, like I, I glommed on to Harold Crick's thing with the romance of it because like when I was a single guy, right. It's kind of like, I, I'll watch a Spider-Man movie, but not more than once probably. (laughs) And it has to be like a multiverse thing now. Um, but it's, I'm, I wouldn't watch a movie about teenagers because I'm 35. (laughs) You know, that would be weird if I identified with an 18 year old. And so now I'm more interested in terms of stranger than fiction, how I kind of watch it for again and again and again is I do still enjoy this, the, the, the romantic subplot of Harold Crick, but also as a content creator myself, as someone who's written and published several things, I can appreciate the narrative acumen this thing has, just how tightly wound the story is, how dense and how nothing is wasted. And everything... Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Just what, what as a storyteller, speaks to you about the way that this story is told? There's a section in it when Harold, after starting to hear the voice, but... Uh, uh, he, he's gone to a, uh, a therapist, a psychiatrist and says, Hey, I'm hearing voices. And she goes, Oh, we have some pills for that. And he's like, I don't need pills for that. And she's like, you need pills for that. And then he says, what if it's not, you know, uh, uh, I'm crazy. And then she goes, well, maybe talk to somebody about literature. So he goes to a guy named professor Hibbert and as Harold is following in, in the introduction played by Dustin Hoffman brilliantly as the introduction of professor Hibbert, as Harold is following him throughout the, the uh, university, you see professor Hibbert is looking at him. He's studying Harold Crick. At one point he says, Hey, have you count? Did you count all the tiles in here? And Harold's like, I didn't count the tiles. And then there are these like, digital readout screens where you kind of get a, a a glimpse into Harold's brain. It's kind of like the brain of a Terminator, right? Yeah. But he sees, yeah. you can see, oh, there's 67.8% soap in the dispenser. 
And then as they, they go into the men's room and then you can see all of the questions that Professor Hibbert asked saying, did you, you know, did you, he's asking, they're having two conversations, right? The first conversation is, oh, what's going on, Harold? Harold says, I'm hearing a voice, right? But then Professor Hibbert is asking other questions to see just how, like, obsessive compulsive this guy is. Hibbert thinks this guy is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. But he's an interesting crazy that doesn't seem super dangerous. So he's just kind of like, really looking to see how crazy the guy is. And then at the end of that interaction, when Professor Hibbert feels like he sized him up, Harold says, little did he know, or, or, or says that the only thing he remembers is a line that the narrator says, little did he know that this seemingly innocuous act will lead to his untimely death. And that set of third person omniscient uh, narrative structure sets all this in motion where professor hibbert says oh i've taught courses on little did he know Mm -hmm. and then he believes harold after that like it's just it it all kind of just builds right like you've seen movies where you're like well you could have cut this down like 10 minutes or whatever Mm -hmm. you can't pull anything out you know you get so much understanding of the professor hibbert character through that interaction there you know Dustin Hoffman's only in this thing in like a half dozen scenes, not a whole lot. And more so than that, when you cut from, because I had this idea watching this movie where the, the conflict of the movie is more man versus the concept of plot itself. Yeah. Right. Which is an update of man versus God, really. But Mm. it's, I've never seen man versus God spun in such a way where it's man versus plot. Because at one point he's trying to trigger the voice and he can't, and he runs in and he goes, Harold storms the closet and destroys the lamp. And he's mm-hmm. trying to trigger it. But it's like the God of this world, this British lady God isn't interested in him anymore. And at one point he looks at the mirror uh, uh, and he locks eyes with the audience. He screams, say something. You know, his whole world is falling apart. And it's the fourth wall is imploding on this character in a novel as he slowly realizes the world isn't what he thought it was. Yeah. And then that cuts to the owner, the narrator of the British voice, where she's up on this wind or, or this balcony and she's smoking a cigarette and just kind of inhaling and exhaling and then the city's in front of her and then she takes a jump right but then she opens her eyes and then she's in her office and then this assistant lady walks up played by queen latifah and when i say that nothing's wasted it's this the conversation they have explains exactly who they are to each other and exactly what they think where Queen Latifah is there to help the author, Karen Eiffel, finish a book because she can't figure out how to kill Harold Crick. And Queen Latifah is in a professional suit. She speaks in immaculate diction, tells you everything you need to know just by looking at it. You think, oh, that's a powerful lady with everything put together. And then you see Karen Eiffel, who is this disheveled mess. (laughs) 
you know, who, who looks like she hasn't like changed her clothes in three days and showered in four days. Just a just this mess of a human. And Karen Eiffel turns to Queen Latifah and says, what do you think about dropping off buildings? And then Penny says, I don't think about leaping off of buildings. I try to think about nice things. And then Karen Eiffel says, they say it's not the fall that kills you. And Penny tells her, I'm sure it doesn't help. <laughs> and, and like this one exchange has like a world of depth into it. Like, because, you know, clearly Penny played all right, Queen Latifah has lived her whole life grounded in the real world. And now she has to babysit this sort of melancholic alcoholic author and it's mm -hmm. god i fucking love this movie so much evan <laughs> again i could go you don't even really gotta be you could go to the like take a break if you want i can keep talking it's fine <laughs> <laughs> no i i really appreciate how you bring up that dynamic especially when you talk about how nothing in the film is accidental or wasted in that initial exchange between penny and karen eiffel one of the things that penny says is I have never had to ask a publisher for an extension. And no. then at the end of the film, when Karen Eiffel has decided to change the ending of the book and she's telling it to uh, the Dustin Hoffman character, one thing she just kind of casually mentions <laughs> offhand is, oh yeah, the publishers are going to grant me an extension. You know, her, <laughs> her chaos has won out over Penny's by the book nature. And, <laughs> and it's all summed up in that one little callback to the earlier dialogue. <laughs> You see what I mean? Like it's, it's all, you know, there's a school of thought I like, and I probably got a lot of it from this and, and, and a book of mine you really liked, which was liberation of earth. Yes, sir. Where every line serves two to three masters, right? Like mm -hmm. it, uh, 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 every line, it doesn't always work, but if you can do it, uh, serves, uh, exposition, it develops the character, um, and it moves a plot forward at all three at the same time. If you can do it right, it's really good. And this movie does that almost the whole way. Yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense that a movie about the writing process would be so literary in its composition because yeah. there's, we, we've talked about the, the different levels that this film operates on sort of narratively. But I also think metaphorically there are two predominant interpretations as well so for those who aren't as familiar with the plot or maybe have lost the thread harold crick is just this mild-mannered accountant who finds out from this mysterious voice in his head that he's going to die to the audience it is eventually revealed that harold crick is a character in a novel who is actively being written and so we can kind of view the entire narrative through one of two lenses. We can look at it through Harold Crick's lens, which is a man who really has to come to grips with his own mortality. And then we get oh, into yeah. the, the man versus God or man versus the concept of narrative as you, as you stated, I believe rightly, but yeah. we can also look at it through Karen Eiffel's lens. And we can say Harold Crick doesn't exist. He's this fictional character. This movie is all about, the writing process and through the writing process, Karen Eiffel feels that Harold Crick is real because she has imagined him so vividly 
he becomes real to her. She she yeah. speaks with him literally in the film, and in the end, she cannot bring herself to kill him. Yeah. And I think that that's such a powerful statement on how the the art that we create can almost take on a life of its own. I mean, I agree with you 100. percent It's 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 your creation coming to say hi. I hope none of mine do because all of my guys are really sad. And, and there are lots of zombies too. That would be concerning. Yeah, they're sad about all their friends are dead with zombies. You know, and I had my own sadness, so we don't need to get dealing with someone else's. Um, <laughs> I likened it to a man asking God for more time. Right. I look from Harold's perspective. If you look at Harold's perspective on it, it's, you know, and, and, and you could replace a lot of the characters with religious archetypes. Sure. Yeah. Where Harold's just a guy, but he hears the voice of God and God says, you're going to die soon. And then he goes to a wise man who understands God, almost like a priest. Right. Mm -hmm. If God's a writer, then a literary professor is a priest. <laughs> and the priest is helping him interpret the world. Right. And at first he's like, well, we got to figure this out. And then after a while, the priest is like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You should probably live your life before it ends. And, and that's a really good scene too, where they're like, they're trying to, cause at one point, you know, and Harold's in their kind of experimentation, um, Professor Hibbert says, don't do anything. Sit in your apartment. Do nothing. Take a day off. Just sit there. And then because they're trying to figure out if he is drives the plot or the plot drives him. And mm -hmm. then the wrecking ball literally comes into his apartment, right? Because there's a wrecking crew destroying the wrong place. And so the plot is literally coming to kill him. Like, <laughs> and, and then he feel like realizes he doesn't have the time. And then when he finally, finally figures out how to contact Karen Eiffel, he goes to God who controls his fate and says, Hey, please don't kill me. And then God says, well, I kind of already did when she wrote down, she wrote everything down in pen and paper, but it doesn't become solidified into her magic doesn't work unless it's in type, unless she types it up. Right. Mm -hmm. It's still hypothetical, but then you're right. He's coming to grips with his own death because, you know, God gives him a sneak peek of what's to come says, Hey man, this is how you'll die. And it's the most beautiful fucking thing in the world. Cause those two characters and that, that have been kind of floating in the background, which make me wonder just how metaphysically powerful Karen Eiffel is because you've got these two, she's been trying to figure out how kill Harold, kill Harold Crick, the whole movie. And in, in her fantasies, there's always a little boy on a bike and a bus driver. And at the end, and then in the book, it says he saves a little boy from being hit by a bus. And there's a little part of me that, cause you see the metaphysical power that Karen Eiffel wields. And I'm like, well, if, if, if you accept that to be true, then you can see where she's wielding control over these other, the bus driver lady and the little boy. And then I'm like, yeah. are they her creations or are they just people she's controlling for her own fantasies? I don't know. 
Yeah, I right. think it's deliberately left up to some degree of interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, so I we, we've been... Th- this whole show is about why you love Stranger Than Fiction, but I want to ask you point blank. What do you love about this movie? And what what is it about Stranger Than Fiction that makes it your favorite? What does it do that other movies just don't do for you? Well, I mean, I'm a writer first. Uh, I'm a storyteller first. And it taught me how to tell stories, right? I mean, you know, you have the you have your teachers in life. You know, I had my own Mr. Feeney and a guy named uh, Ken Strobel. Uh, he was my high school English teacher. And I think I mentioned him in one of my books once. And, you know, there's people that set you on the course, but then you see a work of fiction. It was such an education. Everything is gets interconnected. And none of it's forced and all of it makes sense. At the end, Karen Eiffel goes to Professor Hibbert, right? However, they set up early on that Professor Hibbert loves Karen Eiffel, but she never responds to him. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, I have all these letters I never respond to. There, there's, there's, it's, it's every action is foreshadowed. Everything is earned, right? Like it's, and I don't do this with every piece of fiction I have, although I try to. It gave me a, an example of how to create a story that had no fat on it. If you're going to be a content creator, if you're going to tell stories, and I know I'm really long-winded, so this is going to be a little bit <laughs> silly, but if you're going to do that and you're going to create a piece of fiction, don't waste your audience's time. If something can be cut, then you cut it. You know, it's it's you owe you have a duty to your audience. Uh, because they pay you in their attention. And in life, there's nothing more valuable than someone else's attention, right? As human beings, attention is the most valuable thing, right? Especially if you're an artist, if you're a content creator. And yes, money's awesome. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, divided by zerobooks.com, you can subscribe for $2.99 a month. But um, <laughs> attention is what the audience is exchanging for you to give them a story. And so you owe it to them to tell the leanest, most condensed story as possible because their attention is valuable. You have a duty of care to their attention and you fucking better not waste their time because there's a whole bunch of smuts that are so, so much better at it than you. Right. Like there is a million guys, 10,000% better than me, you know, but I do my best not to waste when I write stories, when I, you know, create audio dramas, whatever. I do my best not to waste my audience's time. Yeah. So I definitely agree that it is a wonderfully efficient narrative. I think something that's interesting, though, is how you speak to almost an educational process. You say it taught me this do do you think that seeing it at a time when you were early in your writing career helped this movie really stick with you i i found that movie right as one of the uh, best-selling books i had uh on audible now it's on you know on spotify and divided by zero books.com um what's that website again divided by zero books.com where (laughs) the best military science fiction lives on the internet um it's called the forever sleep. And I wrote the first draft of that in a waffle house 
on Fort Gordon, Georgia in 2007, right around when I found this. There was a, a period of about five years between my I was age 20 and 25. And that was such a burst of creativity and writing. And just, of course, that was when I was on active duty in the military. So I had a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I had adventures, but um, yeah, I had all this burst of, it, it was a really period of um, enormous burst in, in my writing. And a lot of those books, you know, I still sell to this day. Right. And this movie influenced that period to a, a substantial degree. When all is said and done, what about Stranger Than Fiction stands out in your mind the most? What's the most memorable part of it? Oh, my God. I go over the whole movie. I, I think we didn't go over. I'll go over that. Uh, there's a scene early on when Professor Hibbert devises a test for Harold Crick. And the test is saying, are you the king of anything? King of the lanes, king of the snow globes, king of the underworld. <laughs> and when Harold answers all of his questions and says, what are these questions? This is silly. And Professor Hibbert says, well, you know, I've just eliminated 87 Chinese folklores and 23 Italian fairy tales. And, you know, and uh, establish that you are not Hamlet or Zeus or any of these things, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm watching this recently for this podcast, and I'm looking at this, and this was kind of a new thing I picked up recently, my last couple rewatches, where I saw that, I said, oh, the writer is explaining to the audience through Professor Hibbert that this is not an update on an old story, mm. that this is something new, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it, they're not doing Hamlet again or whatever. It's not a take on the, the Chinese New Year. It's it's something a little bit new and different. But it's it's hidden, right? That little piece of exposition. Um, that's a thing that stands out. Um, <laughs> there's a line, and I guess I'll cap it with this, where... <laughs> Where uh, Harold, uh, or, 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 the girl, the baker girl that he falls in mm -hmm. love with, uh, catches him looking at her boobs. And then uh, Harold Quick says, he starts stammering. He goes, if I was looking at your boobs, I promise it would be as a, re I assure you it would be as the, a representative of the United States government. <laughs> yeah, great, great cover, Harold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like oh that's so wonderfully stupid it's such a top to bottom wonderful movie and will ferrell is 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 electric in it derwin thank you so much for coming here and sharing your favorite movie oh thanks for having me Evan. one theme that derwin kept circling back to in our conversation was that of stranger than fiction's leanness not an ounce of fat on it he says derwin feels that this movie respects its audience's time he posits that movies have a duty of care to our attention. I think he's hitting on one of the most powerful aspects of film. You get a complete, self-contained experience in about a hundred minutes, as opposed to the meandering hours it takes to watch a TV series, or even just a season. Yet film, when done right, still has enough runtime to explore more complex themes and evoke powerful emotional responses in a way that I have found near impossible with shorter form content. This is all especially important to Derwin because he's a writer, 
he understands craft, which makes the connection to a story like Stranger Than Fiction more personal. A common theme of this series is going to be how personal these films are to my guests. Derwin was able to connect to lonely Harold Crick at a time when he was lonely. When we can have our emotions externalized on the screen in that way, it can actually ameliorate our loneliness. In seeing ourselves on screen, we feel seen. That connection doesn't fade. Your Favorite Movie is produced and edited by me, Evan Kelly. Logo designed by Walker Kelly. Music by Morgan Bennett. Special thanks to Lindsay Kelly. If you like the show, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. You can also reach the show on Facebook or by emailing favoritemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.